Thank you, Ian, and good morning again, everybody. It is good to be back here at um, ICP, and it is um, quite um, humbling to realise it's seven years ago, which uh, helps, helps me realise how old I actually am. Um, and if I needed any more reminding of that, Doris and I celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary yesterday. Um, thank you very much. <clears throat> I do understand that applause is more for Dorrit than it is for me. Um, Drew invited me uh, about a year ago to come and speak on this Sunday, and he did say at the time, um, I won't be there. Um, I did wonder what I should read into that. Um, and then, of course, my brother's not here, and looking around, I realised that the elder who didn't get the, um, the email about all of this was Preston. Um, so my apologies to him that he's actually here this morning. <laughs> the passage that we're going to look at for a few minutes is a very complex one. It's one of the ones which is perhaps uh, in some ways quite difficult for us to deal with. But when we deal with any passage of narrative in the Old Testament, there are some basic things that we have to remember. We have to start with recognizing that whatever else the passage may be about, and this is about a lot of things, whatever else it's about, the main thing that any passage of Old Testament narrative about, the main character there is always God. Everything else and everyone else is always secondary. And so this morning, I think as we look at this passage, we ought to be expecting to learn something about God, about who he is, to be perhaps reminded of who he is. But this passage also reminds us that sometimes what we can learn about God from Scripture is actually quite difficult. It can be quite uncomfortable. Our tendency, and this has been the tendency amongst Christians right the way down through the ages, indeed it's the tendency of human beings in general, our tendency is to try to put God into some kind of box. So that we feel as though we have understood him. We can explain him in 7.3 nice easy statements. We think he's got his, him sorted. He's this, he's that, and he's the other. But this story reminds us that God is not actually like that. That we need to recognize who God is from how he reveals himself to us, not how we would like him to be. And all too often, the God that we worship is the God that we create in our own image rather than recognizing that we are created in his. Stories like this remind us that he is not to be controlled by our ideas and by our thoughts. Instead, we have to shape our ideas around him. In the words used to describe Aslan in the Narnia stories, he's not a tame lion. Our God is not a tame God. So let's just place these few verses, this little event, in some kind of context. Jacob 
is on his way back to Canaan to meet his brother Esau. And the journey begins back in chapter 31 and verse 3, when after the relationship between Jacob and his father-in-law Laban has soured, God actually sends Jacob away. And he says there to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. A direct command from God, followed by a very specific promise. Go, and I will be with you. Interestingly enough, Jacob doesn't leave straight away. He doesn't actually leave until verse 21 of chapter 31, when uh, the situation has got even worse, and we're told that he fled with all that he had at that point. But this is the journey that he's on from there to his brother. And this journey contains seven episodes until he meets his brother. And the passage this morning that we're looking at is the episode that comes forth in that line of episodes. In other words, it lies right at the very centre of his journey back to Canaan and his journey back to meet his brother. It's quite clear then that this journey has very specific significance for what's happening to Jacob. On his way back, various things happen. One of the ones which is most um, enigmatic is actually at the beginning of chapter 32, where on the way, we're told, Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim, or two camps. We're not told much more about that. In fact, anything more about that is just left there for us. But it does begin to prepare us for the event that we have just read. And it prepares us for the event of Esau and Jacob meeting once again. And that meeting between Jacob and Esau is going to be very significant. It's very important. But the encounter that occurs here at night, the ford of Jabbok, is even more significant, even more important than Jacob reuniting with his brother. Now, it might be helpful if we just break this story down into little sections so that we can see the progress of it and see what's happening as we go along. So the first couple of verses are a scene to help us understand where it happens. This links with the story before. It sets the scene. We then have a wrestling match where Jacob wrestles a man. We then have a conversation between Jacob and that same Man, And then the final three verses give us the conclusion of that, the results of what this encounter has actually brought about. And there's one other important aspect in this story, and you will no doubt have noticed it as uh, Jim was reading it through. Naming plays a very important role. 
And verse 27, the man asks Jacob his name. And verse 28, he changes Jacob's name to Israel. In verse 29, Jacob then asks the man for his name, and that name is not forthcoming. And then in verse 30, Jacob changes the name of the place to Peniel. So what about those first couple of verses? The setting for this account is the ford of Jabbok. It's a tributary, a stream that runs into the river Jordan. And in some ways, the setting is probably not all that important. Jacob has no difficulty crossing this stream or this tributary. In fact, during the story, he seems to cross it any number of times. It's, it's not like the children of Israel going into Canaan for the first time and the problems that they have in crossing the Jordan there where a miracle is required. There's no miracle required for crossing the water here. Jacob just seems to go backwards and forwards. Its significance is not so much for the fact that it's a river, or a stream. Its significance seems to be in its name. And when we think of the role of names in the rest of the story, that seems to make sense. And also, names are significant in the whole of the story of Jacob. The place, Jabbok, has the same, bear with me here, has the same consonants as the name Jacob. So we're going to get technical here. We've got j b k followed by j k b. I hope you're with me. The same sounds in those two names. It's a fairly typical literary and poetic device in Hebrew playing with sounds in the way in which we do sometimes in English. It's, if you like, the Hebrew equivalent of a pun. Now, that may just sound like, well, that's fun, but it becomes much more important when we realize what word is used for wrestle here. The word for wrestle here is used only on this occasion, And in Hosea chapter 12, talking about the same event in the whole of the Old Testament. There are other words for wrestle. But this one is important because its consonants are j, b, k. It's jabak. Same sounds as the place, the same sounds as Jacob. And so if you like, the writer is making us think a little bit about what's going on here. He's pulling our attention into this story with the use of these sounds. And so we might want to say that Jacob jabbacked at Jabbok. (laughs) Try saying that with your wife's teeth in. (laughs) Jacob jabbacked at Jabbok. We're meant to notice this. We're meant to notice that something actually quite important is going to happen here, just through the repetition of those sounds. We sit up and take notice. The next thing that we need to notice is that it is at night. We have to ask why at the beginning there in verse 22, 
and then verse 23, we are told that he sends everybody who's with him over the stream. He then says, absolutely, sends absolutely everything that he owns across the stream. And then he seems to go back the other side, and we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is he doing this on this occasion? Why is he doing this at night? Perhaps he's worried, he's concerned, he's a little bit nervous. We will probably all recognize that. Perhaps he's unable to sleep because he's worrying about what's going to happen when he meets Esau the following day. Now we know he's worried about that because in the episode before this one, we have Jacob sending gifts, flocks and various things going off every time because he's worried about how Esau is going to react to him. So perhaps he's still a little bit worried. Perhaps he's just wandering around, unable to sleep. Well, we don't know. We can only guess. But the fact that it is dark is very important. It's important for this episode. It's important because it means that the man that Jacob wrestles with cannot actually be seen. He can't be recognized immediately. That man, his face, and therefore, especially in terms of the context of this story, his identity, who he is, is actually concealed. The darkness is quite literally concealing the man. And that concealment is something which is there, not just in Jacob's physical eyes, but also in his spiritual eyes. It's dark. So the man is concealed. And while on his own, Jacob, in the dark, by the river, he wrestles this man until daybreak. And when something like that occurs, I don't know about you, but I sort of say, uh, what? Where did he come from? What's he doing there? And even if there is another man in this fairly lonely place out in the middle of the desert there, if you meet him, why would you wrestle him? It just seems strange, doesn't it? I think it's meant to seem strange. We have no idea because we're not told how this wrestling match actually starts. Did the man try to stop Jacob progressing? Did they simple, simply stumble across each other, walk into each other in the dark and then think, I know, let's fight? <laughs> we don't know. So we're just going to have to leave it at that and say we don't know, but that actually somehow or other God was working things out in this circumstance. You know, it's not wrong for us on occasions to say we don't know. There's only one who knows all things, and it's none of us sitting here this morning. On occasions to say we don't know, and on occasions to say we don't know exactly what's happening or why this has happened in Scripture is perfectly all right. We're told what we need to know in order for the message of that passage to come across. We're not told extraneous things. We may want to know, 
Like someone here maybe wanting to know what colour Jacob's hair was. It doesn't matter. We don't know. Jacob and this man wrestle then through the night. They wrestle for a long time. It goes on. This isn't a 10-minute bout. This goes on for a number of hours. And notice how in this story, Jacob's adversary, the person he is wrestling with, he is simply described as a man. That's all. A man. Later in the story, as Jacob comes to understand the encounter better, as, if you like, his spiritual sight begins to come to him, he realizes that this man is actually God. In Hosea chapter 12, where, as I mentioned before, this episode is referred to, the prophet says that Jacob wrestled an angel. The Old Testament has a number of instances where God's messengers, his angels, appear in human form. And it's not unusual in the instances where that happens for the angel to be seen as and recognized as, in fact, God himself. Many of you remember the story of Abraham as he is visited by the Lord in the form of three men at the trees of Mamre. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and that angel is later described as the Lord. And there are other occasions as well. Angels, the messengers of God, messengers are seen as fully representative of the one who has sent them. bringing with them that person's authority. So the messenger of the Lord is viewed as being the Lord himself. And in this story, the man that Jacob wrestles is seen by Jacob as being God himself. Now I want to suggest that's quite a disturbing thought. If this is God, how can the God who is the creator, the almighty God, how can that God be kept at bay over a period of hours by someone who is a mere mortal? And why, if this man is able to inflict a limp, in other words, to damage Jacob... With a simple touch, why doesn't he do so earlier? Why doesn't he just finish the wrestling match almost before it started? You see, they're quite important but disturbing questions for us. Jacob is wrestling with God, but does not overcome him. And yet, at one point, that man reaches out and he lames Jacob. There aren't easy answers to these questions. 
And we have to be careful that we don't simply try to iron out the difficulties for the sake of a nice, simple, comfortable theology. God is allowing Jacob to wrestle with him. And if you are the descendants of Jacob and you're hearing this story, I wonder how you react to this. You react to this by saying, look at the man who is our progenitor, the man who wrestles with God. The man that God has said, I will be with you on this journey. This is the one from whom we are descended. But also, look at the power of this God, who with a simple touch can bring or could cause a man to be lamed. Our God is a complex God. And the man wrestles with Jacob until dawn is near. And it is that point, at the point of dawn, when he lames Jacob and tells him to let him go. The coming light of the dawn, of course, would have allowed Jacob to see who he was wrestling with. And God cannot allow that to happen. So the wrestling match comes to an end. But notice, even at that point, the man says to Jacob, let me go. He doesn't just break that match up. Let me go, he says to Jacob. So the wrestling match comes to an end. And then, though I am fairly sure they were quite out of breath, they have a conversation. And a very important conversation it is, too. It's a conversation that occurs in three parts. The man speaks, and he tells Jacob to let him go, and Jacob refuses. Jacob refuses. That should make us sit up and take note in the first place. He does what? He refuses. And he refuses unless the man blesses Jacob. I hope you noticed that as we were reading through. I will not let you go unless you bless me, he says in verse 26. I think there are two points about this. Firstly, Jacob recognises that the man he is wrestling with is his superior or his better. It is always the inferior who asks for a blessing. It's a son from a father. It's human beings from God. It's a servant from a king. It's not the other way around. The beginning of the changes that are about to happen in the life of Jacob is right here. They start with Jacob's recognition of his inferiority to God. They start when he recognizes God is God and he is not. All of our true relationships with God are going to start when we recognize that he is God and we are not. That he is greater than we are. 
As long as we think we are in one way or another God's equal, we are doomed to failure. Secondly, blessing is something that Jacob in his life has always craved. Desiring the blessing of his father is what has got him into the trouble that he's in in the first place. Why doesn't he want to go back and meet Esau? Why is he worried about meeting Esau? Because he's cheated Esau of his father's blessing. Jacob has always wanted this. It's ironic, isn't it, that on the journey back to reconcile with his brother, Jacob remains totally true to his character. Give me a blessing. It's what he's always wanted and it's what he continues to want. Give me a blessing. And the second part of the conversation follows directly on from this, even if it may not be immediately obvious. When receiving the blessing from his father, Jacob had assumed the identity of his brother. When the twins are born, Jacob is trying to cheat his brother out of being the firstborn and therefore of the blessing, even at that point. This is what he's like. He'll do anything to get a blessing. And that's how he got his name. Jacob, the deceiver. And that's what this man asks for. What is your name? Who are you? What is, in other words, your character? And Jacob replies just with one word. Jacob. Deceiver. It's almost the statement of confession in his lips. My name. My character is deceiver. But the man then changes his name. He said, you're not going to be called Jacob anymore. You're actually going to be called Israel. God fights. He's given the name because he has struggled with God and he struggled with human beings and his life has shown this. But he has overcome on each of those occasions. Struggling with human beings, whether it's with Esau or his father or his father-in-law or whoever it may be, Jacob has shown that throughout his life. The struggling with God has been evident in his life as well, never more so than in this particular occasion. And so a new name is given. Struggles with God or God fights. The name that will become the name of the nation. And it will have given Jacob hope. The one that God has said, well, I'll be with you, now changes his name to say that God fights for you. You have fought with God, however we want to translate that name. And as he's now going out to meet his brother, he has been assured that as the one who struggles with God, God will now be with him in a very, very real way. But there's something else about this naming also. Naming suggests authority. And we name something scripturally. We name it and we take authority over the thing that we name. This man is taking authority 
over Jacob. And Jacob accepts it. Jacob asks for a blessing because he recognizes that this man is greater than he is. And then he accepts the changing of name, the authority of this man that he has over Jacob. Perhaps Jacob's submission to the authority of God is what we're meant to see here. And then the third part of the conversation takes place. And Jacob asks the man his name. The man doesn't answer directly. He simply says, why do you ask my name? That response seems to suggest that Jacob ought already to know what this man's name is. And that perhaps is especially the case as the next act and the concluding statement of this conversation is for the man to bless Jacob. Jacob gets what he originally asked for, but he's had to go through the acceptance of God's authority over him before that blessing can come. Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Jacob gets what he's asked for, and then the man disappears from the story. In exactly the same enigmatic way in which he appeared, he just disappears. We're not told how, we're not told where he went, we're not told anything more about him because it's not important. But the person who's left is Jacob. And there are results now of this encounter which are going to be important in Jacob's life. Firstly, he has a new name, as we've seen. Secondly, the place has a new name. Jacob calls this place Peniel, the face of God. It had been Jabok, the place of struggle, if you remember. It now becomes the place of illumination. It becomes the place of revelation. It becomes the place where this man who had always struggled now sees God. And as if to emphasize that, we are told that the sun rises. As if to show that actually the spiritual sight that Jacob has returning to him or coming to him for the first time, his physical sight is also returned through the rising sun. And verse 31, then, we read this. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. And if you think what Peniel means, the sun rose above him as he passed the face of of God. He sees when he recognizes who God is. And he says just before that, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. In the middle of all of this is a wonderful act of God's grace. My life was spared. And then thirdly, Jacob has a new walk. The story doesn't make it clear whether the limp he has is temporary or lasting. The implication seems to be that it is for the rest of his life. Jacob met God, and his meeting with God, his encounter with God, has left him with a limp. He had seen clearly, but seeing clearly, meeting God, leaves him damaged 
And that's a difficult lesson for us to learn. We always think, probably, of meeting God as bringing healing and bringing wholeness. Yet here, meeting God has left Jacob, Israel, in a situation where actually, according to the Levitical law, he could never serve in the tabernacle. He could never actually, even if he were of the right tribe, he could never actually go into the place where God was, the face of God. The one who had met God, seen him face to face, could not, under the law, go into the presence of God. He met God. And he was broken. God uses us when we're broken. And sometimes God has to break us in order to use us. Jacob had to come down off of his high horse. He had to be broken. He had to recognize that God is God and that he wasn't. He had to accept the authority of God. He had to be broken for God to be able to use him. You see, our God is not a tame God. He will not be ordered and commanded by us. I once had a friend who said, never follow a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. Someone who is not met God and been broken. Because God uses us when we're broken. And the fourth change that we see here is a new practice for eating. It may seem a little bit strange. Why throw all of that in here? Especially as it's not referred to at all anywhere else in the law. It just says that now this particular part of animals is not eaten by the Israelites because of this event. I think the significance is quite simple. When we meet God, the way we live changes. Or the way we live has to change. There has to be differences in our lives when we meet God. If our life practices do not change when we meet God, perhaps we need to ask whether we have really met him. And so the story goes on in chapter 33, following directly on from this. Immediately after this, we're told that Jacob sees Esau coming towards him. The encounter that he had feared was about to happen, but he now could approach that very differently. Because he had seen God, he could now see Esau without fear. And there's a fascinating little statement in verse 10 of chapter 33 where Jacob says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. He had seen the face of God and now meeting his brother is like seeing the face of God again because Jacob's encounter with God the opening of his eyes, both spiritually and physically, allowed him now to see everything differently, to see everyone differently, even Esau, to see him 
differently. C.S. Lewis put it in this way, that he had finally, finally found his face, his identity. And so he could see not just the face of God, but the face of God in others. We need to be very careful that we don't reduce stories such as this to simple spiritual platitudes. I've tried to imply some of the lessons that we can get from this, but we still have to come back to the overriding lesson about what we learn about God here. And this is fundamental. You see, our God cannot be controlled. Our God is always faithful. He's faithful to Jacob. He said he would be with him, and he is with Jacob. But our God is sometimes unpredictable. He's sometimes dangerous. But he is always good. Let's just bow our heads and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great God. You are a God of surprise. Thank you that you are a God who we cannot control and yet a God who is always faithful and always good. May we live our lives changed by having met you. In Jesus' name, amen.